0: How much do you make? Have you ever thought about suicide? You are fast losing your private identity. Information is being collected about you, and it's being recorded in a corporate memory, making up one big computerized gossip column. It is unforgiving, unforgetful. And so it goes, every minute of every day. You're the mass man. The collective store of all that ever happened. The walls of your rooms are coming down. It's becoming a simple matter to wire and pick out of your homes your private, once solely personal life and record it. Bugging is the new means for gathering information. Who knows? Maybe you've been bugged for sound it couldn't happen what's that buzz privacy was almost
1: unknown Uh, even in Shakespeare's day it came in after that period in the 17th 18th centuries and it was dependent upon uh, an architecture that uh, sealed off spaces Uh, people didn't live in private spaces in uh, uh, earlier periods and uh, it was with the coming of the book and uh, the need for Uh, areas, uh, private areas in which to read and study and so on, that privacy gradually caught on as a value. I don't think privacy has quite the same meaning in our time that it used to have. I know, uh, for example, a big business in Toronto where all the private offices have been uh, dissolved, all the walls have been pulled out so that the um, participants in this business can sit together around tables in the middle of the big office space so that they can watch each other's responses to stocks and uh, world events and so on. They want a, a perpetual dialogue going on among themselves as a response to world events.
0: The family circle has widened, Mom and Dad. The world pool of information constantly pouring in on your closely knit family is influencing them a lot more than you think. The instantaneous world of electric informational media involves all of us, all at once. Ours is a brand new world of all at onceness Time, in a sense, has ceased, and space has vanished. Like primitives, we now live in a global village of our own making, a simultaneous
2: happening. That privacy stuff was amazingly prescient. I had not considered the Hmm. notion that it was an invention of the of rooms and the printing press that separated us. And 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 he kind of saw that as we went into a connected global village, there would be both less privacy. And he also talked about the fact that everybody would know everybody else's business, which is, of course, exactly where we ended up with social media.
3: Yeah, well, he, he saw that privacy was an effect of, of mainly the printing press. And, uh, you know, when we're talking about ground, you know, part, it was that ground of literacy and the printing press that um, made way for, for things like privacy. He talked about how um, before the printing press, people lived a lot closer together uh, and there was no separation. <laughs> there was no privacy. Um, today, we have also no privacy because that ground has been taken away. Um, and the notion, uh, the need for privacy, the notion of privacy is really um, not part of, of these technologies. So, um, you know, when people get all worked up about lack of privacy, it's, it's really something from the past that they don't realize uh, has no place today. I mean, anybody that, that thinks you can do something uh, today online, not even online, on the street, Um, And there isn't a strong possibility uh, it could end up on the front page of whatever um, is, you know, really not taking things very seriously. Uh, Witness the the poor guy that was doing unfortunate things on the Zoom call the other day. Like there is no privacy um, virtually anywhere anymore.
2: McLuhan was famously would not take a position on things. He would say, I'm here to observe their effect. I'm not in favor or against it. Uh, and and so his critics would say there might be a moral issue or a position to take here, and he was like, no, no, it's just effects out there.
3: Well, hmm. um, his his point there was that um, when you when you make a judgment on something of whether it's a good or a bad thing, you largely give up understanding it on its own terms. You know, so um, this is uh, this is why he he tried for that. Uh, that objective stance you know which we think of the myth of objectivity now but um Hmm. you know he also said i wouldn't uh you don't prescribe before you diagnose so he said you know we don't understand these forms yet it's way too early to make a judgment about them and to even decide what to do about them Um, he also famously famously said i don't explain i explore right so Um, I, i mean he had Quick, a quick quick answer for everything. you don't like that idea I got others. but his, his point was that um, there's this is wide open territory and we have no clue what's going on um, and let's not get bogged down in, in arguing about whether something is good or bad. Let's try and understand what it is and what it does to us before we, we worry about those kind of things. You
4: know I want to I ask a question about the privacy side or maybe maybe flag something. Um, I remember a, a book, I was thinking about books that impacted me or, or people that th- thought leaders that impacted me. And of course, um, you know, we've mentioned a few, but uh, David Brin wrote a book called uh, The Transparent Society. And he talked about, and it probably was Echoes of McLuhan's, he talked about the, this, this, this sort of cute idea that we had privacy forever, but we really maybe didn't. And we went through this filter where we had privacy for a little while and now we're not. And his only point there that I thought was really—I mean, many points—but really, point was it could be Big Brother because Big Brother, you know, 1984 had come out and it was a very influential book, you know, in 1948, and and about about the rise of fascism and 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 state murder. Um, and oddly, the main character's name was Winnie, and uh, Winston Churchill at the time was was trying to fight a war. Um, they had never met Orwell and, and Winnie, but but the curious thing is that uh, it could also be little sister it didn't have to be big brother and his point was that there was an asymmetry in privacy because when you were living in small huts or you were living in small tribes you know if if the uncle did something really bad like everybody knew it you know and and so and and little sister could go tattle and and right now there's this asymmetry where a lot of people can collect information, but it's it's asymmetric. The platforms maybe can collect information, but the person can't. Can who's watching the watchers? I guess is the point of it. And and I just wonder how might McLuhan today reflect on on the ubiquity of sensing, the rise of AI, the rise of even on Wednesday's episode we had Danny Lang from Unity talking about putting, you know, tens of thousands of years worth of information in simulations for how a self-driving car would work with every possible agent, pedestrian, daydreamer, mom walking a baby, et cetera, you know, at, at faster than real time than you could ever do with driving a car. How would McLuhan explore or, and I think explore, um, the current state of the medium, you know, the algorithmic medium, the, this space of sensing and asymmetry?
3: Well, you know, um, the subtitle of, of Marshall's collaboration with Quentin Fiore was the medium is the massage An inventory of effects. Um, Mm. so one of of Marshall's, um, techniques for, for getting a handle on any situation was to make an inventory of, of the effects. Um, If you remember the figure and ground exercise I was talking about, Mm -hmm. the the thing about an environment is that, um, and we know that these new technologies become environmental and that's when they become invisible um, because it's really hard to look at an environment, you know, because it's such a a huge dynamic. It's a dynamic ever changing. It's a process, you know, it's not so much a hard and fast thing. Um, So he would make inventories Um, for me. Uh, I just actually got a four by eight foot blackboard, which you can, you can make a pretty big inventory on. It really helps me um, to be able to write mm. things down and just start to map it out. Um, mm. and, and you realize uh, quickly that that's um, one of the only ways, you know, this AI and these technologies that are taking 10,000, you know, whatever, they're basically looking at these things environmentally. Um, which is very difficult for, for one person uh, mm. to do. But, you know, Marshall, Marshall relied on on old old but, but effective technologies. Um, one thing I did was I spent uh, a year and a half uh, documenting and inventorying his library, which is about 6,000 volumes. Um, oh, and it's a, it was a fascinating thing. Um, you know, he had these co-authors that he wrote books with, um, but he also had six thousand authors in his library who were the unwitting co-authors of his works too. Because, um, and as as Peter knows from the course, Marshall, uh, this is a copy of Understanding Media, but um, Marshall would would get a book, and he was a, a voracious reader. He read so much. Um, he he annotated and and eked every interesting idea out of every book he ever read and made mm-hmm. notes of them and, and used it in a very sophisticated way. Um, but, but part of his genius was really taking um, bits and pieces from different people's work and applying it to the study of culture and technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, an, an interesting thing, you know, um, you mentioned uh, Teilhard de Chardin. Uh, although I spent a year and a half in Marshall's library, Um, you know, I, I got a really good idea for the, for the books that he used. Chardin is, is not there. And, um, most of what I know about Marshall and his methods and his work comes from the 10 years I spent with my dad. Um, and I asked him about it at one point and he said that, um, Marshall really didn't think very much of, of Chardin. Mm. And I know other people have said Mm. otherwise. Wolf makes a lot of the connection. Um, and there are a few places. I can't remember off the top of my head where Marshall mentions the limitations of of Chardin, but um, I I really don't think uh, Chardin was very influential on Marshall. Mm -hmm. The new sphere thing um, didn't lead to the global village. Um, What did was uh, a British British Canadian painter and writer named Wyndham Lewis. And Mm -hmm. Lewis wrote a book called America and Cosmic Man, um, which he basically states the global village. Uh, but uh, you know, Marshall just put it in in little more poetic terms. Um, the other thing is is Marshall was not shy about acknowledging a debt. Um, he He says a lot of places how much he owed. He said that his his work is basically applied Joyce. He also said it with a footnote to Harold Innis. Um, you know, so uh, he certainly wasn't shy about about naming people he owed.
2: Uh, yeah.
3: was never one of them, I don't think.
2: Interesting. Why is he applied, Joyce? <laughs> we might as well go there. <laughs>
3: well, um, you know, uh, my dad wrote wrote a, uh, an essay which is printed in Theories of Communication, 2011, called um, Joyce and McLuhan. Um, hmm. And, you know, as I said, I spent a long time with Marshall's books, um, and although I haven't read everything he's ever written, I've, I've read a lot, and there, there are a few people that Marshall quotes a lot of authors, but number one is James Joyce. And the number one book is Finnegan's Wake. Mm. Um, and this, yeah. <laughs> this makes people uncomfortable <laughs> because Finnegan's Wake is, is a difficult book. Um, it's very hard. It is. Uh, and i you know, dad, my father, Eric died not quite three years ago. Um, and one of the things I, I really wish is that I'd spent more time with him on Finnegan's Wake um mm. because it's so impenetrable but
5: um well, Can yeah can I ask you a question That because the, Joseph Campbell wrote The Skeleton Key to Finnegans Wake yep. and I uh, so did he have any what was his feelings about Joseph Campbell and and he, and he, and because he was obviously some literary critic sure. in,
3: in, um You know, I'm not sure. My dad does have the Skeleton's Key to Finnegan's Wake on his shelf. My dad wrote his uh, PhD thesis on Finnegan's Wake. Actually, um, Finnegan's, what a crazy thing. In Finnegan's Wake, there are 10 words which are 100 letters long. And one of the amazing things (laughs) my dad did, they're called thunders. Uh, My dad's book is The Role of Thunder in Finnegan's Wake. And- Is it
4: thunder, T-H? I'm sorry, I want to make sure. Yeah,
3: thunder, like thunder. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they're called that because um, the, first, the first Thunder, which is on the first page of Finnegan's Wake, uh, it's 100 letters long. And it's um, made up of, I think, 70 or 80 different languages, words for thunder. Anyway, it is uh, one of my dad's amazing discoveries uh, that each of these thunders um, describes the effects of a different technology. Uh, mm. And that's, that's what his book is about. Uh, Marshall says in various places, he says, you know, every time I made a discovery about media, about technology, I'd go back to Finnegan's wake to find James Joyce had done it earlier. Oh. Hmm. Uh, it's, uh, it's really interesting. Finnegan's wake typified. I think Marshall's ideal book, um, for our age because it's non-linear
5: uh, you know, it starts
3: at the end. Right.
4: Uh, uh, Andrew, I want to bring bring one of our listeners in. Uh, just from a reference standpoint, I want to I want to quote you something that uh, Dan Pesta on Facebook said. I feel like he loved Joyce because to fully experience it, you read it out loud, and yeah. this perhaps reminded Marshall of a more acoustic world. What What's your reaction to that?
3: Um, yeah, for sure, and uh, this is what my dad told me about reading *Finnegans Wake*: is that you have to read it aloud. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's meant to be um,
5: performed. Really? Really, really. Uh,
3: much of it is is it's written for the ear, not for the mm-hmm.
5: eye. Oral to this, uh, that's right. yeah. and,
3: and Marshall, I think, I think Marshall, that Arthur, Marshall had ahead. so much fun with language, right? Yeah. Um, and, and this he got from Joyce. Some people say he read too deeply from *Finnegans Wake*. Um, but uh, he made he made a lot of discoveries um, because of it, and um, a lot of his playfulness with language was away for him. Uh, this was his exploration uh, of many things. That makes uh, sense. Go ahead, go ahead, Peter.
2: Well, I was going to say I find that Marshall's work is often best read. Like when he reads and speaks, there's an intonation. There's a lot of information in that, and it it's bothered me to this day that understanding media has never had. An audio book. Is there a <laughs> podcast of it? No,
3: there's there's. It was made into an e-book, but not not an audiobook. That's interesting that you would say that, Peter, because um, I find that uh, Marshall's very approachable in in speech. Um, mm. But uh, I think the advantage of, of reading is that you go at your own pace, yeah. and you can stop and rewind, and you know spend. Mm. Like the way that I, I read a lot of McLuhan's work is paragraphs, sometimes sentence by sentence. And that's because um, a lot of his writing was really um, poetry, you
2: know? His, his cadence. Well, I mean, maybe this is the poetry thing again, but there's a cadence to the way he speaks. that is incredibly, dis- it's as, he is as distinctive in his as say Martin Luther King was with his. And he probably has hmm. a tradition that goes back as deep as, 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 as black pe- preachers do. But I just found yeah. that to be very distinctive. It's, it's helpful to know that Marshall's mother was an elocutionist.
3: Oh, wow.
4: yeah.
5: <laughs> that that, that does make sense.
4: She didn't, she didn't do that stuff with, with Edison where they were electrocuting horses. Or <laughs>
5: that,
4: was, no, that was just wrong.
3: No, no, no. Ele- so um, Marshall's mother, uh, Elsie Naomi Hall McLuhan, was a well-known um, in Canada, in North America at the time, elocutionist, which is um, she gave dramatic monologues um, she hmm. would uh, book a theater and give performances where she oh, would wow. she would read all the parts of a play. So she was ah. a master at vocal technique.
4: So he learned that on his mother's knee. Yeah. Wow. Very,
3: very much so. It was and that's uh,
4: probably what Peter reacts to. You know, just I know Peter, you're very much into the spoken word and the and the you know the the narrative that is yeah. then reported. You know, live.
3: Well, the other part of that is that Marshall studied at Cambridge University, um, Trinity College. And uh, uh, oh. the people that he studied under there in the English department were I.A. Richards, for example, who wrote Practical Criticism. Um, and Practical Criticism is uh, a method for studying um, for, you know, critical techniques of particularly poetry and literature. And one of them is uh, one of these techniques is by discovering the voice of, of the author uh, and and of the work. So it involves um, a very performative reading uh, and performance of, of the work in question. So Marshall, uh, you know, took that to heart. Marshall also Um, knew very many several languages you know this Mm. was actually one of his his ways of getting out of his own biases toward technologies was um, to approach them from as many different angles as possible you know he Mm. said uh, I don't have a point of view and and that's because he he didn't have a single point of view he if you want Mm -hmm. to understand a problem you have to come from at multiple sides so in
4: well, these days, these days we sort of think about that sometimes as code switching between different things. you know if you're multilingual, okay. you kind of talk differently with your parents at home than you might you know in the workplace or something else and, and it gives you this richness. I wanted to bring up another um, comment uh, from the viewers s Alfonso Williams says that this whole discussion kind of harks back to his thesis on the trivium. What is the trivium. <laughs>
3: Okay, we need a couple. Who
4: more are these people watching? Because I don't even know that. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> anyway,
2: I, I I think I'd love if actually people could post how they found out about us. I did lob in a promo for this conversation into the Marshall McLuhan Group on Facebook, which uh-huh. is a group that is deeply into this and one learns okay, a Okay, but
4: what is the, the trivia? All right, let's go. Okay. What's the okay. trivia? This is
2: this is pr- this is important actually. Um, huh. uh,
3: coming back to Cambridge. Marshall's PhD thesis was on the trivium and in um, classical education, there was the trivium and the quadrivium. Um, And these were the main subjects of study. The trivium is dialectic grammar and rhetoric. Um, The quadrivium is music, mathematics, astronomy, and um, Hmm. the other one. (laughs) So It's also known as the seven liberal arts. So uh, Marshall, Marshall's Ph.D. thesis was called The Classical Th- Trivium, The Place of Thomas Nash in the Learning of His Time. And it is an incredible work where he studies the trivium that is um, dialectic, rhetoric and grammar. Now, dialectic is, is logic. So when you're talking about debates, uh, dialectic has a lot to do with it. Grammar is um, interpretation. So it's uh, etymology and exegesis, and rhetoric is uh, persuasion, the art of persuasion, again, with, ah.
5: with
3: um, So uh, dialectic, grammar, and rhetoric. These are also major schools, uh, academic schools, and Marshall traced the, the development of the Trivium from uh, the time of Cicero in ancient Greece up through to the Elizabethans. Um, and it is uh, an incredible work. He read hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books, um, and I mean, it's a uh, it's a it's a lot. I've read it. I struggled through it, but it's uh, it's an incredibly it's half footnotes, you know. So uh, it's mm. the most academic thing Marshall ever did. It, it is available. You can get it through through Ginkgo mm. Press. Um, and mm. if you're, I wouldn't recommend it for the casual. Mm-hmm. Uh, person, but it's it's a fascinating study for sure, and it so, has
0: relevance
4: today. I want to I want to uh, make sure. I mean, John. Usually, you can get a word in edgewise here, and, and it just I, I feel right. like we're we're trying to learn a lot. But no, actually, Andrew, this is good. You you're able to hold your own with Mickey and Peter and John as well. But John, what's your reaction to this kind of conversation? But also looking forward, you know, because a lot of what you do is 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 really looking at the sort of where we might go and how we might do these, you know, um, emergent systems. These, you know, right. and and so what's what's your reaction to all this? Where do you? Well, where I, I, I find it really, it's
5: a fascinating conversation and going back and and sort of uh, revisiting the these the, these issues and these conversations, particularly through literary criticism. Uh, I remember at that time, Northrop Frye was a figure that I was really interested in, and then how. These set of categories and language and rhetoric were important and cutting across disciplines. Um, I think what we're seeing now uh, is a, a a new kind of synthesis. I mean, you were alluding to the fact that the biology, uh, synthetic biology, and, and what thing living things is a new medium, and I, I I think that's correct. I I and I I think that we're we're. It, we're imagining our future in a very, very different way. In the sense that the the, it's the, the time scales of future and past are sort of uh, inter interwoven. Uh, and I I don't I mean I don't mean to get off into esoteric terms, but there there's these concepts of the work that's being done by this, this these groups, uh, Carl Friston's work, what they call a new kind of Bayesian mechanics, um, in which it's sort of the next succession of, of two sort of quantum mechanics classical mechanics relativistic mechanics we have quantum you have bayesian mechanics is basically things imagining themselves and imagining their 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 uh, affordances around them and they imagining them, them them and re-representing themselves i mean this sounds really uh quite abstract but it 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 is it's sort of grounded in some really uh uh, deep, I, I think, principled uh, work that translates into new technology and a new way of thinking about technology, and I'm I, I'm I'm very excited because from from a personal point of view, I see the synthesis starting to take place of this that I was looking at earlier uh, in my earlier in my career. I say, oh, I, I think this is really telling. I think we have a way of, of of imagining a new feature a future and understanding that in a way we've never had before. John, you've uh, also think, written
2: about moving think, away from the from enlightenment thinking. You've written a lot about the enlightenment. And, and if we consider this kind of broad face change, so McLuhan hooks up printing enlightenment, a particular orderly way of thinking. We've all in this show talked before about Danny Hillis's piece from enlightenment yeah. to entanglement, which suggests we're moving more into a world of very intertwined systems thinking, multidisciplinary. This seems to also relate to what Marshall said, about moving coding Joyce from the west to the east, and 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 things that are much more holistic, right? So there there seems to be a moving to systems thinking here. But you're also distinguishing the fact that our systems thinking is moving from perhaps representation and models to actually a living system itself. Right. So it's a further inquiry into living systemness, biology as a way to create our new forms of media.
4: I feel I feel like at some point, you know, we always have. A few dead guests and we've had Marshall on today. Um, I, I'm I'm bummed out that we didn't have um uh video Tarhard Chardin.
2: Uh, obviously <laughs> I want
4: I wanna get him on. But it feels like we need to have John Conway who has recently passed away, but I remember watching him speak about the game of life and there's a wonderful sort of YouTube example of the game of life playing inside of the game of life, playing inside of the game of life. And and it kind of seems to go to where you're going with the Markov blankets and and this notion and and earlier in the in the passage today or in the discussion, I talked about uh, fractal deepening and I was actually wrong. I went and checked that it. It's actually fractal vascularization, and structural deepening happens with any new technology. So and it's this kind of recursion that I think yeah. is really interesting. And at the very beginning of the talk, just to loop loop us because I, I like this looping thing. Um, I mentioned there was. I was reading a book about a video game where the guy was saying, um, the guy was saying that uh, that he he doesn't know if these computers and PCs and video games are going to be something. It's called the Making of the Prince of Persia, and and what's fascinating is when you look at the book, it has the actual passages, and then in blue it has his comments twenty or thirty years later to what was happening you know and while he was doing this and and he didn't want to change his journal but it's this it's this weird thing that seems to be jumping medium right it goes from he was writing code with his brother and he was doing things and then he was making a video game prince of persia was you know a, a little pixelized thing and you know and and now more recently it's like a worldwide disney super super movie and then reflecting back again to this thing and so what is the role of recursion and the role of uh, um, mixing and matching and and you know there's this playfulness. And I think it comes through maybe Andrew, you were talking about how he, he looked at the artists actually be the people who are actually manipulating and playing with medium. But what's the role of recursion and the role of the sort of remix culture? Because it's not like we're we're getting rid of writing or literature. We're not okay. getting rid of the book. It's 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 like being reborn in these weird okay. ways. Hey, I mean, Ranjani is doing these things where the book reads you and it actually shows you different words depending on which time you read it and how old
5: you are. Could you could just comment on that a little bit on this kind of uh, recursion? Is this, the idea of, of Markov blankets, well, I will get, is, is a Markov blanket is the ability to distinguish itself from another. Uh, it's ability to say that this, there is a conditional independence of one thing from another and that's dependent upon its senses, its actions as internal states versus external states. But mm-hmm. the interesting thing is that they're, they're scale free in other words that they are nested they can be nested in space and time and at higher levels they, they can have different scale levels but they interact with each other so mm-hmm. there there isn't this sort of one would think at different scales and, and different nestings to be independent but in fact the argument there is they're not they're actually they're not they're always agreed through. Other. Yeah. And that and that's I mean this me, of,
4: this reminds me of the ultraviolet the ultraviolet catastrophe from classic physics as well, you know. That 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 is not the case. These things are sort of semantically layered
5: but there's bleed through. There's bleed and and they, and they can do and they can shape each other. Yeah. They and 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 uh, but they have a principled way of describing that. They have a mathematical way of understanding hmm. where they they could converge and then they and they affect each other. So it's a very it's a very well worked out uh, representation. I mean, the, the idea of Markov blankets came from Judea Pearl, who got, who was, a you know, one of the key people in, a, in AI. Um, but it's sort of the next generation of Bayesian systems. Is, it's is causal learning rather than just optimization. Um, but it, it, it's it's a very, you know, having been interested in, you know, nested sets and fractals and all those things, how they work together, to me, it seems it provides a way of explaining how things that different scales affect and interact with each other. As you go up the scale, it slows. As you go down the scale, it gets faster. But they're interdependencies. And you can represent those. Hmm.
2: Uh, Alfonso Williams sent us a great question, uh, which actually relates to the last episode he did. And it's completely related to this notion that we, ha- that we have computers and entertainment rubbing ag- against each other and building new medium. He writes, the computer game industry is making more money than music and film these days. What is this medium allowing now beyond its early affordances of simulation? Now it's almost a playground for economists where users are financially interacting with their gaming environments. Um Alfonso Arland- So he gives
4: us one example of what it's becoming, but what's another one? I guess that is an interesting yeah. question for John. Like what else will these mediums afford?
3: Well, I think the I think the main thing is what you're you're we we're talking about before is that this is the ultimate participation for the user. Hmm. You know. And and if you're if you're look, I, I think that's really what it boils down to. Is it's it's hard to imagine um, any more involvement um, than participation of millions of people on a massive online right. game. You know, this is this is the ultimate. It's kind of a, hmm. a marketing wet dream, as well as um, you know, the ultimate for uh, the modern person who craves this this participation. Um, in creating content and meaning and everything else.
2: If you look at the last show that we had uh, with Danny, who was the head of AI for Unity, one of the conversations we had is he came to Unity, a gaming platform, and brought it a very rich set of machine learning because they wanted to move it from a game to a very rich simulation so they could put into it economies, or the physics of new pieces of technologies and properties, and then through a great amount of of, of, of of simulation and 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 then lots of agent-based simulation, seeing how that world might occur, right? And then and John, this actually gets into a lot of the work. By the way, tweet, that you know the, the machine learning
4: stuff tweet. that that he's introduced is recursive and uh, a grammar in itself, in that there are seven hundred thousand developers on Unity, right? Sure. So, okay. so 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 six or 700 million users of games unit, 700,000 developers. And, and it is the, one of the number one platforms for actually testing out machine learning at scale, but it's modular. It's a grammar where you they actually have a store and, a, and an environment to be able to buy different machine learning modules and and, and play with them in your game mechanics. And uh, League of Legends has actually been able to do at scale with millions of people at a time, experiments right. in norm development and norm moderation from trolling, where they've been able to basically like play out with either kicking a troll off completely, or actually putting them in restricted chat for a while and seeing if they do their behavior. So they've done like something like 200 varied tests with various things. So it's becoming a weird, interesting, and I think it relates to what Alfonso said, it's becoming this this place for policy
5: experimentation. I I think to model something and to understand something is to model it. I mean and, and I mean I think Feynman said something to that effect. And I and I think that's really becoming quite real. Is it's not just a digital twin, it's the fidelity of the behavior of that thing that I can then project myself into through augmentary and I can experience at different levels. And I think they're getting richer and richer and richer. Uh and so the 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 difference between the model and the reality of the experience is being reduced. And I think we will not we will not understand something unless we can model it and experience it in a new way. And that that's and and that becomes a new criteria. And uh, I, I feel like
2: um, another wonderful oh, go ahead, Peter.
5: understanding media here.
2: When we were talking to Danny from Unity, who comes from a very rich AI background, and we asked him why did you end up at a gaming company? He said oh, these rich platforms had to become so in-depth to simulate things and to create an environment for all these different actors behaving. That those of us who are seriously in the world of simulation things like simulating all sorts of uh, autonomous driving things from Uber went to right. the gaming platforms because that was the richest medium that simulated the world. And it was much better to add AI to that rich platform that had such an ecology and so many users and so many developers. And that says something fascinating about a medium that is about a simulation of the world, and a way of playing the world. And also, when we talk about engagement and a global village, this moves us from a global audience or social media, which kind of was our first model of of a global village more recently, into some deeper global participation, mining of knowledge, and building something new.
3: Well, you know, Marshall turned his metaphor from the global village to the global theater, where he said there are no... um, are no, Spaceship Earth is where there are no passengers, only crew. The global theater, there are no, there's no audience, only actors, only Mm. participants. Uh, and, and that's the same, same thing. Um, it's kind of funny that, um, it took them until the mid 1970s to realize that, um, in 1957 Sputnik went up and created, uh, ecology basically, he said after Sputnik in 1957, ecology became inevitable. And in fact, it was six months later that he said the medium is the message for the first time in 19 early 1958. Uh, you know, he wrote, he came out with um, the Gutenberg Galaxy the same time that Rachel Carson came out with Silent Spring. And oh, they wow. are arguably both ecological texts, only the one is about the biological, the natural environment, the other bit, the technological or artificial. Um, and as, as John was already talking about with Weiner and other people, all these kind of um, ecological, zoomed out, broader view uh, thinking works started to come out all around the same time. And Marshall attributes this to, to Sputnik and the satellite, which came out and created, you know, turned the, the earth into a work of art, into an object of attention.
5: The whole earth you know, catalog, little- yeah.
2: It's also interesting that uh, he wrote his piece at the moment of Sputnik, The Planet Became a Global Theater in 1973. Uh, yeah. And it was December of 68 that the big blue marble, the picture came back from Apollo 8, right? Which hmm. then led to the whole Earth Catalog, Stuart Brand, the birth of the environmental movement, Earth Day in 1970. And in a way, McLuhan presages it the Global Village and then completely gets it and writes about it three years later, but that was also the richest period, right? Of of um, mm. E. F. Shoemaker, Buckminster Fuller, That's right. Uh, right? And and we're recapturing that now at a time when, you, you know, McLuhan, That's I think accurate. also pointed out that that like uh, something goes from being real to art and to be just like a little appreciated specimen, the way that the earth, that wildlife has done that, and now we're looking at our mm. at our Earth as a scarcity thing and not a, a wild thing.
4: Peter, you, you said at the beginning of this episode, or maybe in the in the preface of this episode, that we would be recreating something that happened in the 70s because of an event that happened last night.
2: That's right. Tell me so, more. Mickey, you know, it, it turns out anytime we look at media ecologies or look at a system, we have to know where we are, where we stand. We have to understand field from ground. And where we stand right now is it's 5.31 Pacific time. And while we are talking about recursion, and Markov blankets at the same time we have the linear to deal with because we actually have an agenda to go through. So I want to applaud you for pointing out that we can have the linear and the nonlinear at the same yeah, time. We can. Here's where We're at. We are we are, we are going to get through it all of this. Uh, we we we're, we're going to talk a little bit about global village and identity and we're going to work through retribalization and the tribal warning. I want to we're going to spend a little bit of time on education and by the way McLuhan wrote uh, city as a classroom. That was a very rich thing. Uh, we've got art, but before we end up, it turns out that in 1976, um, this anniversary, President Carter and, uh, and or Jimmy, J- President Ford and Jimmy Carter had a debate, and Marshall McLuhan went to the Today Show to analyze the debate, not from a political context, but from a what happened context. And he had the advantage of being a Canadian. He didn't know what the heck was going on with US politics, which led him to understand more. Well, today we have Andrew McLuhan who's going to help us do that. And he's also Canadian. Yes, he's also Canadian. And who also has the advantage of what I called him and said, please watch the debates. He's like, are they still happening? So that's, by the way, maybe <laughs> the biggest. For those
4: of us who who don't watch the world, <laughs> Uh, last night there was a debate but let's go back and and understand jimmy carter i think yeah okay
2: we're gonna get to that that's our (laughs) oh you're gonna tease us (laughs) what so i want i want to as i move us forward um (laughs) one of the key concepts here in this global village was we moved into everybody knowing everyone's business and you might even acknowledge might even think that like bin Laden and Al Qaeda that might have kept it themselves, but because they watched Dallas on TV and they looked at our profane lifestyles, they knew what we were doing and so they had to come and attack it, right? And, and we know so much about everybody else's business. Here is what McLuhan said about that in our kind of global village identity piece. So me, let's go ahead and run that.
0: We now share too much about each other to be strangers to each other. For
1: example, in the age of the information explosion, all the walls go out between age groups, ethnic groups, between family groups, nation, national groups, between economies. The walls all go out. People suddenly have to adjust themselves to this new proximity, this new interrelationship. And uh, merely to tell them that this has happened isn't very helpful. For helpful. What they need to know is, if it is happening, what does it mean to me? The uh, Global Village is a world in which uh, you don't necessarily have harmony. You have extreme concern with everybody else's business and much involvement in everybody else's life. It's a sort of Ann Landers column writ large. And uh, it uh, doesn't necessarily mean harmony and peace and quiet, but it does mean huge involvement in everybody's else, everybody else's affairs. And so the Global Village is as big as the planet and as small as uh, the village post office.
2: You, you know, he said two things in that. One is you could be aware of the effects, but it would be useful to tell people what it means. And then secondly was this realization that uh, uh, w- when you introduce all of this, we know each other's business. On a very practical basis, when I was in one of the first social media companies, when I was at, at, at Technorati, we started off with this very idealistic belief that we were democratizing information, we didn't realize the downside of it. At some point, we realized um, w- there was no privacy, and nobody knew how to deal with that. You know, uh, kids in high school would post anything, and then the consequences uh, caught up with them. Um, you you could track people for metadata, and 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 you know, this takes us forward to to Facebook today. Um, when, when you look at that, um, Andrew, he does he does tell us that you need to practically understand how to apply these things. Uh, and, and you're trying to do some of that today.
3: Well, um, you know, this was, uh, I think if Marshall had an objective or maybe two objectives, it was for one to wake us, to wake us up, you know, Finnegan's wake, to, to wake us up to the, the fact that we create these technologies and they take over everything. They affect us very, very deeply just to wake us up to the fact that the medium is the message. But the other thing he really wanted to do was um, he said, look, there's no reason we can't understand um, our innovations and do something about it. You know, why, why are we constantly um, playing this game where we're uh, fighting the side effects and the consequences? Why can't we design smarter basically? Um, And, and I think um, that's where we are today that we have, You know, Marshall um, and other people, but Marshall left us a lot of tools, things like the Tetrad, the laws of media, the four effects, um, figure on ground, ways that we can study um, what technologies will do to us um, beforehand, you know, and we're in a place where, as other people have brought up to, you know, the effects and causes kind of merge and, and at some point eclipse and go past each other. Um so we're we're in this incredible time and place where I think we have a lot more agency than maybe we want to admit uh possibly because we we don't want to take responsibility maybe um or you know the idea of slowing things down means uh slowing up profits I don't know but um uh, you know I think it's it's past time we started um, you know doing something in advance. <sighs>
2: I mean, this this gets into questions of is there technological determinism? Um, uh, if you invent one business model that's incredibly powerful, how do you get unhooked from it? Do you build something that's even more uh, engaging? Like if you look at the whole conversation around uh, Facebook now and the fact that uh, it's at the limbic system level, it works so well to promote something that that hooks you or is you know I don't know the words upsetting, but but titillating, right? Which is the reason that. It, it boosts the anti-vaxxers, or it boosts conspiracy theories, because that's just like inherently interesting. But that's also easy to hack. And then the nature of that system it reinforces because the money's there. That's a very powerful self, you know, feedback loop, addictive system. And, and literally, you know, the, the if you were to go talk to say Roger McNamee, uh, who who wrote Zucked, or Tristan Harris from the Center for Humane Technology. Roger's like we're going to have to regulate Facebook out because it's too powerful. And Tristan is we need to come up with something better or maybe use it less, right? And other people are trying to figure out what's the next thing. But we're 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 in a moment now where the consequences of this stuff seem as great as ever. And and you you know, it, and it's written it's it's risen to the point that you know th- some of this tech stuff used to be peripheral to the economy, but now it's central and there's a lot of eyes on it.
3: Yeah, you know, I think this is uh, one way that the COVID situation has been um, very helpful because uh, it's it's shown us how easily something can disrupt all of our lives on a global scale, um, be it a, a biological agent or not. Um, the case of studying COVID as as a technology or having the effect of a major technologies is is very instructive, um, and. There, there are many things that, that we can learn from it. Um, techno you know people would say that um, like to say Marshall was a technological determinist but uh, Marshall said, said you know I don't believe there's any inevitability so long as we're willing to contemplate the situation you know um, So I think he was the furthest thing from a technological determinist
2: really. He did observe that these technologies, completely affected us. And I'd love to spend a little bit more time on this notion of how elect, trying to understand what electric technologies have done to us culturally, perhaps moving us more towards that pre- or post-literate era, so that we might understand where we're going. Here's another clip from him. I think this is very early in 1962, on what he means about retribalizing. Yes, we're retribalizing involuntarily we're getting rid of individualism.
1: We're in a process of making a triumph. For just as books and their private point of view are being replaced by the new media, so the concepts which underlie our actions, our social life, are changing. We are no longer so concerned with self-definition, with finding our own individual way. Uh, what the group We're more concerned with what the group knows, of feeling as it does, of acting with
2: it, not apart from it. So, are we moving away from individualism and the group, perhaps the mob, or are we sticking with individualism? Because, like, America has this deep libertarian individualist tendency. Andrew, I, I, I keep trying to work out in my mind um, w- where we're headed here. And he also makes the point that that um, uh, nationalism, he thought, was a was a result of um, well, nationalism was going to result from from literate culture, and and you'd have a very different effect from post literate culture.
3: Yeah, um, you know, the United States was founded on the book, on the printed word, uh, and that's that's why it has this this strong impulse for uh, individual identity and the rights of the individual. Um, but again, we're we're past that uh, nationalism. He felt that the the radio was the ultimate nationalist tool or enabler. Um, And he said people don't want to contemplate how the radio made possible, Gandhi and Hitler alike, Uh, you know.
2: He also had a warning. Um, I will play one more clip and then we'll all talk about this tribal stuff. He also pointed out when people heard Global Village, they thought they heard this is great because we're all going to be globalists and get together and you know uh, eat each other's different types of food and smell the spices but no marshall said that might not be the case so let's take a look at this
1: but it seems dr <laughs> McLuhan that this 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 tribal world is not friendly oh no tribal people uh one of their main uh, kinds of sport is a uh, sort of butchering each other it's you know so it's, it's a full-time sport in tribal societies but I had some ideas. We got global and tribal. We, you know, we were going the to become the closer you get together, the more you like each other. Yeah, there's no evidence of that in any situation that we, we've ever heard of. That when people get close together, they get more and more uh, savagely uh, impatient with each well, other. Well, why is that? Because in the nature of man, or, yeah, or his tolerance is uh, tested in, the, in those narrow circumstances very much. Village people aren't that much in love with each other and the global village is a place of very arduous interfaces and very abrasive situations when you live out on the frontier you have no identity you're a nobody therefore you get very tough you have to prove that you are somebody and so you become very violent and so identity is always accompanied by violence this uh, seems paradoxical to you ordinary ordinary people uh, find the need for violence as they lose their identities so it's only the threat to people's identity that makes them a violence terrorists hijackers these are people minus identity they are determined to make it somehow to get coverage to get noticed and all this is somehow an effect of the electronic age? Oh, no. But people in, in, in all times have been this way. Mm-hmm. But in our time, when things happen very quickly, there's very little time to adjust to new situations at the speed of light.
4: So, I, but before we go too far on this, I just, I just want to say, I mean, I think there are some things there that I'm not convinced I believe today. And mm-hmm. also because science move, moves forward. Mm-hmm. Right, there's some very strong evidence. Eleanor Ostrom, we've talked about in the past with with her design principles for dealing with shared resources or the tragedy and the 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 positivity of the commons. Um, I, I'm not convinced tribalism always leads to to all this. I think I think there would be a pluralistic answer to this that might turn out to be a little different from new discoveries about sort of why individual cells actually create multicellular organisms and that are winian, Kind of reason why cooperation and interdependence and collab- collaboration came about. That said, I think the point that I really appreciated there was that fear of, of your loss of identity, mm-hmm. fear or, or not having a confidence in your identity, leads to conflict. And, and I completely would agree with that. And I think, I think that, is, that is a, a crux of, and a deep understanding. But I want to hear, Andrew, what's your reflection on this? <laughs>
3: Uh, okay uh well i mean i happen to be talking to you from an actual village the village of wellington which is like less than a thousand people um i grew up in toronto but i've been living in in this area of small towns for the last 20 years essentially um so i can tell you uh, that he's pretty much on the mark with that you know um people make a lot of concessions to get along but uh you know, there's there's the surface level, and then there's you know gossip and and everything else that happens uh, behind the scenes. You know, it's really surreal for me um, to see to see clips like this. Those two, in fact, separated uh, more than a decade, almost twenty years, I think, uh, between more and more. Early sixties, later seventies. Um, you know, it's it's really it's a weird thing to to get to know a member of your family like this uh it's still it still weirds me out a bit it but it's also um an extreme privilege because um it's allowed me to get to know a member of my family uh after the fact and um i've I've had so many different ways to do that it's cool to see stuff on youtube but really um the more intimate way i've gotten to know marshall has been uh through his books yeah. Um, and it sounds weird to say that, but, um, you, you know, when you're, on tele- when you're on TV, when you're on the internet, on a podcast, you know, people are, are watching, you know, people will be watching later on. Um, but I, I don't think you have that same awareness when you're making an annotation in your book. You know? mm. um, and so that, that year and a half or so I spent documenting Marshall's library was a really um, – you know, it was so personal and that I wasn't expecting. Um, mm-hmm. You feel like you're following, because Marshall would write his name and the place and date when he bought a book. So you feel like mm-hmm. you're, you're traveling these places with him. You're in Cambridge in the early thirties. You're in St. Louis, Missouri for a few years. You're back in Toronto. Um, and I'm now doing the same thing. Um, we bought my, my father's place uh, earlier this year. And so I've inherited his 6,000 or so volume library and I'm doing the same inventory. And it's a really strange thing to be, um, following, uh, these intellectual, uh, footsteps and getting to know people, uh, in a completely different way. It's, um, aside from what we're talking about, it's, uh, it's another level of thing, which is very bizarre.
2: And Andrew, I love that I,
4: I'm, I just think that's so beautiful though. like the just the, I wonder if you are an example of a signal from the future, though, right? Because Marshall probably had more video made of him than the average American or the average Canadian at the time and and produced more content um, and and had a rigor around kind of documenting things that is a precursor to us basically being sensed all the time, right? If you were to annotate your iBook today. I might be able to discover that if, if if I maybe could inherit your iBook collection as a as a child or something and I wonder if it's a precursor to what we'll all feel or our children's children will all feel about trying to do sort of personal archaeology into the past because because our children are leading such documented lives in some ways
0: mm. uh,
4: but I I love this this personal experience of annotating the book and seeing where he was when he bought the book I just love that idea of 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 having a, a sense of the arc of history through the through the books
3: yeah it's it's really neat and and another level of it is that um you know marshall didn't just read read it once and, and put it aside you know for marshall a lot of times if it was worth reading one it was worth reading three or four times hmm. um, you know for example with his finnegan wake finnegan's wake he had half a dozen copies And he annotated it so thoroughly that he ran out of margin space. He ran out of, so he bought a new copy and started again. Um, But uh, it's, it's crazy. But um, some of his other books um, are interesting because, so you see, he bought it in Cambridge in 1934. Um, But I I don't know about you, but myself, uh, my writing is over time. And so early in the 30s when he was a student, he had this very flowing copper plate, really beautiful writing.
4: Oh,
3: yeah. It gets jerkier and his style more compressed. He uses shorter forms. Um, So it's really interesting to look at um, a, a book from his library that he's read a few times and you can see because of the different writing styles. And that's really neat because you, so can, you also, can.
4: start detecting when when he might have annotated it. Mm. Yeah,
3: and so it's interesting because you see huh. that um, ten years later he discovered different things. Different things leaped out to him in this book. Oh wow, yeah, uh, and it's really interesting that you can follow uh, his intellectual development um, hmm. through his books like that. There's. Um, it's really interesting. Like you don't think about this, especially today, when you know most people uh, or a lot of people have e-readers and yeah. you know, different ways of taking notes. But um, there's a so it's hard to to think of a book as as a sophisticated technology. But um, you know there there are certainly people who interacted very in a very sophisticated manner uh, with their their books, and and we can still learn a lot from them.
4: You know, um, just the last comment on this, you know, you were reflecting on seeing your your grandfather and, and you could kind of see the evolution from his script. Um, when when I was raising my son, who's been a, a cub reporter on the show here, Zen, um, we had a, one of the very first AT&T had created a chip based voice messaging thing where if you weren't home, it didn't have a tape, it actually recorded a voicemail. And when our son was like six years old or seven, when he went and visited a friend or was at the you know the, the daycare <laughs> too long or a babysitter, he would call from the house and leave a message to us. And a lot of times we would actually be there, we just didn't want to pick up the phone. Um, but he would say things like, pick up the phone, pick up the phone, come on, pick up the phone, mom, are you there, mom, 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 mother, are you there? And when we heard a really beautiful one, we you know, and often we'd pick up the phone, we'd hit remember. There was like a button to save, and every time we moved, we took this little digital recorder with us because it had a spare battery that would keep it alive, and and I remember going back for Mother's Day one year and finding that his voice changed over time, because he he actually went to become uh, you know a teenager and he went through adolescence, and so I have this video clip that we gave to his mom. For Mother's Day one year, that is actually his voice going, "Mother, Mom, Mom, pick up the phone, please pick up." Mom, ah, Mom, I'm over at Graham's house. I hope it's okay. I would Mom. like to stay for dinner. Mom, I just <laughs> had a delightful. Mother, I oh. am doing the, the you know New Year's Eve in New York. I don't know what happened, but I'm here, and I hope you're having a good. And it's and it and it was kind of what you were saying, like it was this glimmer of the arrow of time that 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 I, I don't think anyone else had experienced as much, you know, in that way. And you you were experiencing it in a very sort of retro factor, fact way. I'm sorry, Peter. I know you're, you're trying to way, go this, somewhere this with is, this, this is conversation.
2: The <laughs> that, that Andrew, I'm so pleased that I'm in your 12 week course that allows us to de- dip deeper into all of this. We're only going into week four tomorrow of your course over at Gray Area. And for anybody who's interested, at grayarea.org. Andrew's doing a 12 week course uh, di- digging into understanding meaning using Marshall's original notes. And, and you can see the depth of this. <laughs> what I'm going to suggest here is this is a really great discussion. We should do more of this. And we have a number of people who want to join us uh, uh, Tristan Harris from the Center for Humane Technology, the gentleman from New Atlantis, you know, who wrote that wonderful piece on digital city and analog city. Some folks from the Annenberg Schools. We have have a rich conversation to have. I want to jump us to last night and to the debate, so everybody can go home and um, and handle (laughs) among other things. You can prepare for your class tomorrow. Yeah, Uh, work to do, Peter. (laughs) Jeez. Um, um,
4: Welcome to quarantine. (laughs)
2: Yeah. Uh, Okay, so last night there was a presidential debate, and in 1976, let's just go back to. The star guest on the Today Show to help us understand it, Marshall McLuhan and 1976. <laughs> There's seven minutes from the debate being over. Carter starts an answer in the middle. Audio goes out. Nobody knows what's going on in the audience. And for 26 minutes, they can't get the audio
1: back on the, all three networks. We have had no indication uh, from the technical side as to what the problem is there or what the prospects are for clearing it up. Ford and
2: Carter are both standing there. They don't move like they've been, like two kids who've been punished and sent to go, you know, think about what they've done to the country. And they just have to stand there until the, the problem gets fixed. And then once it does gets fixed.
0: Uh, he will conclude that response now. You know,
2: then they go on with the last six and a half minutes of the, uh, of the debate, but they spent almost more time standing in silence next to each other than they did actually talking.
1: Marshall McLuhan is practically a household word in this uh, television-conscious society. He's from the University of Toronto, of course, the author of a book called The Medium is the Message, and he came to New York last night so that he could watch the debates, watch them not so much from a policy point of view, but from a television point of view. The glorious moment was the rebellion of the medium against the bloody message. The medium finally rebelled against the most stupid arrangement of any debate in the history of debating. Why was it stupid? Not from a the By scripting point of view, Mm -hmm. the the characters who had arranged that debate and scripted every aspect of it had no understanding of TV, and they didn't even know that TV is not a debating medium. Mm -hmm. And they had arranged it as if it were a newspaper set up or a radio set up, They had no awareness of TV. With the breakdown in the technology, the audience finally got into the act. Well, Professor McLuhan, if this debate had been arranged by people who, in your view, knew and understood television, how would it have been done? Now, this would take quite a while to explain, but it, it would be much closer to what we're doing right here, chatting casually, spontaneously, without a script, and paying attention to what is being said. What those men said last night was merely to hold the the audience on the image. It didn't matter at all what was said last night. You are the uh, proponent, of course, that television is a cool medium. Yes. Both candidates last night were programmed and costumed yes, and made uh, up precisely. Had either candidate uh, dared to present a policy, it would have destroyed his image. Was one more cool than the other from a purely no, television they're, point they're of view? No, they're both uh, uh, in a, stor- uh, uh, a state of panic cool they were terrified of making a false step they were standing in press the pants barrels and looking absolutely like some straight-jacketed characters and uh, absolutely the hottest type of medium you could imagine everything that the scripters and arrangers
2: had done was hot stuff they had no idea of what the tv medium That debate was the first one after the Kennedy-Nixon debate. It was the first debate to feature a sitting president, and evidently people bitched about debates back then as much as we have this year.
4: What is hot and cold? What does that
5: mean? <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, that's, that's what we're
3: getting into next week in the course. <laughs> okay.
5: <laughs> Stay tuned. Uh,
3: right. Uh, it's Basically, um, hot and cool are categories for comparison and um, Marshall fell victim to uh, this impulse that we have to come up with, you know, special language for things, Uh, you know, neologisms and it backfired in this case, really hot and cool are our ways of describing the nature of technologies as um, hot, meaning high in definition or information. Um, or cool, meaning very low in information. So like um, a comic, uh, like a serial comic, um, is very low in definition because you supply a lot of the um, the animation going between panels, whereas, um, you know, this kind of image right here is very uh, filled with information that is... Um, we're not um, as involved in making in completing the circuit. So um, I mean that's kind of what it comes down to. It also I feel um, like we have
4: to have we have to have Claude Shannon on the show at some point to talk <laughs> about information theory.'re if, if we're gonna round this out, maybe for part two of this this because I know it, I know we've <laughs> got to give people a chance to actually live their lives. Um, I I love that. I did not know that's what what he meant by cold and hot. I think that's fascinating.
3: I mean, it's a simple thing, but it gets, you know, the the terminology gets in the way. He defines a hot medium as one that is well filled with information. Um, And it has to do with participation, um, not so much on the content level, but on the sensory level. So that, um, like, for example, a, a film, like, old, old films that are actually film, you know, they're sped at a, at a certain rate so that they give the illusion of movement, but really it's a progression of still images that your mind does, your eyes and your senses do a lot of the work filling in the movement. Um, that's, that's what he's talking about in the way of participation here, yeah. not, not participation like in these massive gaming things where we're all playing together. Um, it's party, participation on the sensory um, level.
4: You said you said a word in there, and I feel like I, I don't know. I feel very naive. I I think I know it, but it was neo neologism. Ne, no, what was yeah. the word? A ne-
3: it's it's ironically a, a neologism is just a word that you make up. Uh, basically, you know, like hot and cool, or I don't know, fake news,
2: right?
4: I like to make up words. That's good. Mm -hmm. Peter, um, how do we... Let's plan for the next episode. Let's let's get everybody...
2: We have one coming up. I'd love to just get a quick round of comments here on last night from a McLuhan-esque analysis what we thought went on. I'll offer my thought. I believe last night they interjected just a few bytes of code, an if-then loop that said there'll be a mute button. And it was the mute button hanging Mm -hmm. over that completely changed everyone's behavior. So I believe that was the enormous context that we saw. That was the thing that flipped it. And again, it you know, it, it, there, there was a little bit of, you might say, the, there were very few moments of actual content. I thought that Biden at the end hmm. suggesting he was going to shut down the oil industry was probably a bad political move because it's probably better to build a new industry than announce you're shutting it down. But beyond that, it was basically looking at... A but that's budget. actually a nice signal. I
4: mean, that's like... That's actually a very, uh, I mean, if you actually think about the planet, that's that's a pretty fascinating thing for a politician to say.
5: Huge statement. It was a very. Can you say shut down? I mean, he said transition, right? I mean, that's what I, I mean.
2: Well, he he he. I didn't uh, watch
5: it. I don't. Yeah. Uh,
2: no. I don't have television. He, he basically <laughs> said he he said we had to phase it out,
5: right? Transition is um, Yeah. You know, uh,
4: John, uh, what was your
2: reaction?
5: Yeah, I, I, um, I mean, I, I, I the, Peter makes a good point. I mean, the revenge of the medium, in a sense, uh, ties to Marshall's point of the, the microphones being that they the, oh, controlling the whole like situation. The, button. the mute yeah. button actually uh, changed the whole dynamics of it um, and forced them into a whole new mode that was uh, uh, it was uncharacteristic, certainly for uh, Trump.
4: Um, I expected him to go just. Uh, Trevor Noah the other day said he expected him. I'll just rep, replicate what he said on The Daily Show. He expected Trump to just, if the mic get cut off, walk over and lick Biden's mic and then <laughs> just, you know, because he did infect it and then just keep going.
5: I thought he'd do something like that. But I'm so but evidently his handlers really got to him. I mean, uh, oh. uh, I really thought he was going to try to uh, tackle him or something. I think he, he get out of control. But he. he, he 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 held it. Um, hmm. but it it was it real? Was it authentic? Was it? Uh, was it a debate? Did you want to
4: change the channel, John? What? Did you want to change the channel? No. Yeah. Oh, okay. So you were captivated.
2: Well, I wasn't captivated, but I mean, it's you know, I had to take action, so I simply walked to a television in a different room. That did it for me, Andrew. Andrew what how about you, Andrew? Response?
5: What's your comments? Yeah, that's how. Yeah, Andrew.
2: What's the dispassionate Canadian McLuhan esque response? Yeah, right.
3: Well, I think it was a no brainer, wasn't it? Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> a a right.
2: yeah.
3: In in a word, um, it, you know, we call it a debate, but um, you know, it's as much a debate as you know, this is a phone. You know, it's uh, a shade of, of what something once was. Um, and that was March what it was. six. Was that, you know, this isn't, this has nothing to do with debating. Uh, and what they ran last night is a far cry from what they did in '76, actually. Um, it was it was very interesting. Um, Peter made me watch it so we could talk about it today, and we're spending two minutes on it. So thanks for that, Peter. I like
4: <laughs> that. Yeah. About, yeah about, uh, that's not the right timing. I,
3: mean, I was about <laughs> to do it. It was, it was. Interesting. Um, you know, I didn't I didn't know much about Biden. Biden came off as a politician and Trump as a businessman, and they mm-hmm. both made that very, very clear. Um, and I don't think it bodes very well for the, the turnout of the election. Um, but uh, you know, Mickey said something, he said, I don't have a television, right? And there's this great uh Marshall McLuhan had a, a discussion with WH Auden back in the 70s. And uh, Auden says, they're talking, debating television. And Auden says, I don't have a television. I wouldn't dream of having one. And, and Marshall says, well, then, you just suffer all the consequences without getting any enjoyment from it.
0: You know?
4: <laughs> <laughs> well, that's it. Yeah. I guess I missed out on all the, the joy of watching this. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, anyway
3: one, one thing that I think that really stood out to me um, was that the and it was funny, Marshall in the 70s talking about the press your pants thing. Um, people might not know, but um, when they laundries used to have these giant contraptions that press your pants, and that's what they were standing in, those little booths, that's what he was referring to. It looks like yeah. in a pants presser. Um, and I, I noticed that the debate last night, It made I thought they were about to start playing Jeopardy because it really seemed
4: like... <laughs> oh. <laughs> that would have been perfect (laughs) right
3: on set it looked like to me the other thing that struck me was that they're virtually um identical i mean um Mm. you know trump is perhaps a more orange shade of pale but um here's these two white guys in almost identical suits the main difference between one's wearing a red tie the other's wearing a blue tie um they're Mm. both wearing cufflinks and uh, you know, the America flag waving on the lapel. Um, but the thing that really struck me unspoken with Biden was that, and he said this, uh, well, for one thing, Biden really addressed the viewer, you know, and he's like, come on folks and folks. And he's like pointing and all this stuff. Whereas Trump is, is, you know, behaving a little differently, but Biden over and overstated, um, you know that uh i'm uh, when i'm elected if i'm elected i won't just represent democrats but all americans yet here he is standing there with this blazing blue conservative uh, liberal i'm you know democrat party tie really belying what he's talking about and that as an un- yeah. unspoken kind of thing um really struck me but uh i was i was also uh Surprised by um, the level of civility, even if it wasn't in any way a debate, they weren't debating everything. But um, I was expecting Trump to be a lot more obnoxious, and I felt he was uh, much better behaved.
4: You know, I remember uh, reading an article in Scientific American about uh, debate, and that the value of debate was actually when you had to actually defend the other side, and that that when you psychologically had to defend the other side. You actually found more common ground. And the there's there's a debate series called Intelligence Squared that I first encountered at Aspen Ideas, where where they kind of test the audience before the debate and after the debate to see if you actually moved anybody. And and I think the best debaters there were actually literally doing a good job of trying to, to mirror the other side. You know so that they can- and defend the other side. Like like I'm going to try to win the debate. If I flipped the coin and I actually got the wrong side of the coin, to the death, because that that allowed for an actually dynamic dynamic debate, I would love to see that kind of thing happen. But but if I don't I, think that. The, um, in the, future. the
3: last McLuhan story out there is one of the one of the greatest stories I heard about Marshall was he had a childhood uh, friend named Tom Easterbrook, and they went to the University of Manitoba together. And they both worked their passage to England, to Cambridge university on a cattle boat in the height of the depression. Um, And uh, all they brought with them were a couple books and their bicycles and they biked around England together. And I heard this story that um, early on, they made an agreement between each other to always agree to disagree, but to use that as the beginning of conversation so that whenever one of them took a position, the other would automatically take the opposite position. So they were agreeing to disagree in order to further the conversation and share it. those wits. And I really love that that yeah. idea, which I think we need more of.
4: Well, just to play and put on that other, I mean, in this way, it's a, it's a medium of putting on someone else's norms and views and perspectives. You know, that the medium is the other person or, or trying to model the other person goes back to what John just said. The value of modeling. Um, yep. I think this is a nice
2: place to try to wrap up. And Mick, if we connect this back to the conversation we had with Catherine Gall exactly a week ago, this on um, kind of politics, she had a number of theories on how you make things more representative, engaging, and create competition in politics. Part of what Andrew's pointing out here is in this field ground analysis of, of, a, of a debate, we might add another tool to what political discourse looks like. And one of the fun things about oh. quarantine or the All the connection points across shows that you might not expect, but here they pop up. Uh, Andrew, thank you. Clearly, this is the beginning of something. Um, We we intended this to be an hour, uh, but uh, there was so much to probe. Here we are. and, and the yes. exciting news is in preparing for this show, which we kind of did at the last minute, we had a whole bunch of people who wanted to kind of dig into stuff with you. So we'll do another one of these, uh, perhaps closer to Thanksgiving and after the elections and, you know, when oh God.
5: Uh, yeah. we have turkeys and stuff.
4: But I wonder, who. I mean, in the next show, let's talk about who teaches McLuhan today, aside from Andrew. In other words, can I find a, a, a level in Minecraft that's the McLuhan level? Can I find it on Coursera? Like, how are we, can I find it in a public school discourse at the age of seven or eight? Like, who is teaching the archaeology of this information and taking it forward? And I don't want to litigate that today. I think we should move on. But I would love to hear more about that in the next episode.
2: Yes. So we will have Elam who, who from the New Atlantis, the, who we talked okay. about, Andrew, kind of very interesting McLuhan-esque analysis of t- today's stuff. And we fired up some friends at the Annenberg School for the question of who is doing the stuff today. So we're on the case. It is a case <laughs> that is currently going uh, into recess at 6.12 Pacific quarantine <laughs> to be resumed. Uh uh court is dismissed for the weekend. Okay. And Andrew, <laughs> thank you. Fine
4: conversation yeah, this time, Andrew. And Andrew, okay. I'll see you okay. tomorrow.
2: Um I'll see you tomorrow. Uh Can I ask one final question? What's our homework for tomorrow?
4: Stop. <laughs> Stop, Peter. <laughs> well, so the show.
2: The whole point
3: of of what we're doing is um there is no homework and there's no assignments and you're not getting this. Well, you might get a certificate. I don't know. But um, <laughs> what I'm doing with this course is kind of what we've been doing tonight, um, where I'm, I'm basically, we're reading this together and I'm commenting um, and bringing uh, my knowledge to bear. But the other thing is I've got these three copies of Understanding Media that Marshall annotated um, after the fact um, and I'm using uh, his annotations and basically using oh, wow. them to guide through the book uh, because these are annotations he made uh, toward a 10th anniversary edition so um,
2: mm.
3: you know it's kind of a mutual exploration in an attempt maybe it's an a Joycean attempt at a non-linear reading of Marshall McLuhan I don't know mm. but um, it's fun. Oh, look! I'm selling books. I guess
2: just to let you know, I'm I'm on board with the case, and <laughs> I didn't have to buy these. Are had Peter? These you got series, a lot of reading me me tonight. <laughs> tonight.
4: Yeah.
2: Hey guys, thank you so much, Andrew. Thank you, uh, John. Thank you, Maybe. thank, you. Nice. Oh, thank you, thank you, so much. And it is now six fourteen Pacific Warren time. Take us out.
5: There you go.